Welcome to Rooted and Reaching, a podcast from the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Columbia in Columbia, Maryland, where we celebrate the beauty of our diversity. In our conversations here, we share stories of our journeys and explore ideas that challenge us in order to nurture the interdependent web of which we are all a part. We are rooted in faith, reaching for community. Today I'll be talking with longtime members Gail Thompson Guy and John Guy. We'll chat about how they discovered Unitarian Universalism and UUCC, how they came to be a couple, as well as why it's important as Unitarian Universalists to talk about money. So John and Gail, it's so lovely to see your faces. Thank you for taking some time out of your day to chat with me. It's good to see you too. Happy to be here. So let's start with what brought each of you to Unitarian Universalism? Let's have Gail go first. Okay, I've been here longer. (laughs) (laughs) I've been here longer than anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it, It starts all the way back when David Markstrom and I were married and planning a family, and we had moved from California to Maryland. We had no family here at all. Nobody this side of the Mississippi River. And we we talked about it. Neither one of us had been churched through childhood. We just didn't find anything when we were teenagers. And when we got married, we were too busy. So then it was time, and David was a member of JC's, and a fellow named John Day had made friends with him, and John was also friends with Eileen Henderson, and he told David, you know, there's a, a bunch of people getting together I think you might find interesting, and the result of that was that David went to our Genesis meeting in the basement of the Henderson's I couldn't go because I had a baby at home. But I went to the first picnic and I got talked into not just meeting people, but by the time I left, Frances Miller, a very lovely woman who was our first president, had talked me into being the first secretary. Well, then we were kind of off and running and we just stuck with it because we wanted a group of people who would reinforce and share our values while our kids were growing up. And we were largely young people with families, little kids, all the kids played together. It was supportive. It gave us the family we were missing. My daughter was married here not once but twice. I was married here not once but twice. <laughs> And my son was married in the church. It, it's just such a part of me. I don't know how it could not be there. Right, right. What about you, John? My first wife and I, first wife Seeger, were living in Laurel in 1960. And we were about to have our first baby and only baby, Judy. So we joined the Presbyterian Church in Laurel. And... Soon thereafter, Seeker was on the search committee that brought in a new minister who was ready to do progressive work. And along the way, he asked me to teach a course in ethics 
for adults, which was a brand new book being offered. And I think a part of the book was not only presented by the Presbyterians, but it was also offered by the United Church of Christ. So it was dealing with all of the ethical issues of the modern times of living along the beltways and churches being active for social affairs. And I found out that I learned more than my students. So by then, minister had, like Page, had grown the church from 200 members to 450 members, and he burned out and left. Much to my chagrin, my fellow elders said, we're going to get rid of all this and go back to the way we used to be. And Seeger and I looked at each other and said, no, we don't want to do that. And then one day, Seeger looked in the religious page on a Saturday and said, there's a place called All Souls Unitarian in D.C., who's just gotten a new minister, and it's his first black minister. Let's go check it. So we went, and we fell in love with the place, and we joined. I'm still a member there, and we stayed active there from 68 until 95 when I retired, and that's another story. So I know the fuller story of how how you two lovebirds met, but I was wondering if you could share with me some of the highlights of that story. I first knew of John because he was David's boss, and that was the only way I knew of him. I'd seen him at a promotion ceremony, so I could identify him. And then he and Seeger attended David's memorial service. Well, that was nice. But in 1995, suddenly one Sunday morning, he and Seeger walked through the door. I did not know till that minute that they were in a terror. And then I found out that John had been involved in some of the financial stuff at All Souls. Well, I had been asked to lead a uh, an annual drive. And so I asked John if he would work with me. And we got a program together, managed to meet our goal that year. And they also needed a capital campaign. Well, that was our first effort. We'd not done that before. So I asked John if he wanted to work on that. So we did. By then, we had a good working relationship. We'd become good friends. By then, I was married to Ed Thompson, and Ed met Seeger, and the four of us decided we really enjoyed our time together. We, we had a bunch of lunches together. And by the way, that grew later in the Monday lunch lunch. At any rate, then, but then Seeger's health began to decline, and Ed had died, so I was alone. Well, then Seeger died, and John and I, we were really good friends, and we realized we, we had two big houses, two big yards. Our backs were giving out, and it was kind of silly, and we talked about the idea of one house for the two of us. Well, by that time, we had changed this friendship, and we were actually dating. And we decided, well, if we're going to have one house, we ought to get married. Or at least that's my interpretation. John? <laughs> <laughs> what I remember most about our getting started with each other was 1995 when I retired from NSA, and I said, told Seeger, I cannot drive downtown anymore, so I want to start going here in Columbia. Mm -hmm. Well, I knew I broke Seeger's heart, but she she agreed that we would attend here at 
UUCC. The first work session I went to at UUCC, and they, somebody, I guess it was Kathy, who stood up and said, all right, who wants to work on money? I held up my hand, and this young lady sitting in the same room as I am held up her hand, and we found a third person named Tom Wing, of which all of you know, that's a real fine member, and the three of us worked on finances. Now, what I learned about Gail during that time, she and I built what I call trust and respect for each other. Hmm. I have to say, of course, when we decided to get married, we also had a little sparking going on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, getting married with her was a new experience. When Seeger died two days after my birthday in 2011, I found that life was one big hole. I had this big house and this big yard, and it just was empty. Yeah. And so was I. Well, I had lots of energy, and I had a lot of trust and respect for Miss Gale. So I started chasing her. And finally, one day, I managed to get a kiss out of her. And I went home the happiest I'd been in ages. Thank you for sharing that. So we kind of started to talk about money already, but now we're going to really focus on it. Both of you have been very open about the importance of talking about money at UUCC over the years. Can you speak a little bit to why engaging in conversations about money is important in helping to align our use of money with our values? All right, I'll start on this one. Okay. So when I came to UUCC, first thing I saw, this place was scared to talk about money. It didn't want to talk about it. Mm. Money was too private, (laughs) I guess. But actually, there were several words at that time that the church wouldn't talk about. The word G-O-D was not allowed to be talked about, amongst other things. So, Reverend Cindy Snavely, she used to have talkbacks after her sermons. And I stood up and used to say, hey, folks, it's okay to talk about money. Finally, after spending many weeks and months building that culture that it's okay to talk about it, we did start talking about it. So that when when Gail and I did our first campaign for the operating budget, we confronted people face to face and asked them for their pledge. That was unheard of. Really? That was unheard of. Here's an envelope and a, and a piece of paper. You write your pledge on it and seal it, and we'll carry it back to the church. Right. Yes, we went through a whole lot of stages. <laughs> By the time we got to the first capital campaign, this place was just humming and talking about money. And during the capital campaign, we had an interim minister named Richard Nugent. He had no problem talking about money. And he talked about money in the pulpit. Yeah. And then he got to help us with the capital campaign, a Unitarian from Boston who worked as a fundraiser for the Boston Hospital. And Gail, Gail showed him what we were doing. And Chuck Thompson said, a lot of that is okay, but you got one problem. We said, what's that? You're not asking for enough money. Mm. We asked for the top pledge of 25000 He said, ask for 100000 If you don't ask for it, you don't know whether you're going to get it. That's true. But you know, before the campaign was over, we got one anonymous pledge of 75000 and another of 50000 as matching. Wow. So the good news that Chuck offered us, he said, Unitarians have a bad rap. They don't give. 
but they do give when they understand what the money is going to be used for. Mm -hmm. So the most important thing we have to do, and especially today, we have to be very clear to the members. When, when you pledge, here is where the money is going, and here is what it's buying for the congregation. And in the, in the Unitarian, there is no other source of money but the congregation. And that's a shock to people who come in from other faiths. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I have learned, Unitarians who have a chance to talk about priorities on spending the money, they will take ownership of the budget. And they give freely with no fussing. And many times they give more than just what they pledged. Thank you, John. Gail, do you want to do you want to add anything to that, or did that? John, John covered it. Uh, okay. When it comes to me and money, I want to know what are we working toward, and we have a lot of dreams of what a lovely world would look like, and every single step of the way is going to cost. Somebody, money. It's just what makes things happen, whether you're talking about building space or staffing or crepe paper and glue and cardboard, uh, courses that we buy from the UN, whatever it may be, we're going to need to pay for it. So to reach those dreams in our pitifully short lifetimes. We have to play. We have to pay for. Right. That's very practical and true, Gail. Thank you. See you next Wednesday for part two of my chat with Gail and John. And if you haven't already, support our podcast by subscribing to Rooted and Reaching on Spotify or Google or Apple Podcasts. Thank you and see you soon.